quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Welcome, I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. Hey, and I'm Sanjay Gupta. I just noticed I don't have a teleprompter. Anderson, sorry about that. This is CNN's Global Town Hall, coronavirus uh, fact versus fiction. Uh, we are being simulcast all over the world, CNN International, CNN Espanol, CNN.com. Uh, you know this, Anderson, this is our 12th town hall in as many weeks doing this, but it's the first time with all 50 states now, I believe, lifting virus-related restrictions in one way or another. And this is happening without a coordinated federal plan for reopening, we should point out, testing or contact tracing for that matter. And it's happening with new cases rising in 17 states, holding steady in 21 and dropping in just 12. Infections are rising in Michigan, where the president visited a Ford plant today. He brought a mask and briefly wore it backstage, but took it off for the tour. And these are his words, I didn't want to give the press the pleasure of seeing it. And it's worth, Anderson, it's worth pointing out that three of the president's top health officials, all who are worried about their own exposures at the White House, are not only wearing masks in public, but they are in some form of quarantine. We have clear evidence uh, now that wearing a mask can, can help save lives. Most people are doing it, thankfully. I think it's also a sign of respect and, and, and caring for others. Yeah, it, it's, it's not like there's no reason not to make every effort to protect the people around you, even people you don't know. That's just being a good citizen. The outbreak continues taking lives, more than 94,000 so far. And there's a new study from researchers at Columbia University suggesting that if the country had begun taking social distancing measures just a week earlier, about 36,000 deaths could have been prevented. President Trump calls the study, quote, a political hit job. Also, Anderson, uh, CDC Director Robert Redfield warns now about the upsurge in cases that we're seeing in the Southern Hemisphere, which could lead to a flare-up here in the fall. We're going to talk tonight to Task Force member Dr. Anthony Fauci. It'll be good to see him. He'll be taking your questions as well. And in our second hour, we're going to take a look at what the next school year could look like. Our special guests include educator Jeffrey Canada, the president of Notre Dame University, plus a special message from First Lady Melania Trump. And as always, you can tweet your questions, use the hashtag CNN-TownHall, uh, or leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Also, a lot of you have been sending in video questions, and we're hoping to get to as many of those as we can tonight. And Sanjay, we also have reports from across the country and around the world. We start with uh, this country right now and where we're at. There have now been more than 1.5 million positive cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. More than 94,000 people have died. The U.S. continues to lift restrictions. For the first time in two months, all 50 states have partially reopened. 12 states are now reporting a drop in the numbers. Last week at this time, there were 24 states that saw their cases declining. 
17 states are now seeing the number of cases rising. If we see dramatic increases, then yes, the way we're doing it, we can pause. Even though the country is opening up, the estimated death toll has fallen. The University of Washington is now projecting fewer deaths. Last week, it was at 147,000. They now predict 143,000. This drop may be explained by one simple factor, face coverings. 40% of the U.S. wears a mask all the time. About 80% wears a mask sometimes, uh, and that's probably helping separate out that impact of rising mobility. The urgency for a vaccine has only increased. Some companies this week have released promising results from early trials. Still, there are no guarantees. And the CDC director warns of another flare-up of the virus in the fall and winter, which could lead to a second lockdown. As we head into a long holiday weekend, many beaches, restaurants, and parks all over the country will be open and potentially packed with people. Ahead of that comes a sobering statistic. 106,000 new coronavirus cases worldwide were reported to the WHO just yesterday. That's the single largest increase in a 24-hour period since the outbreak began. Almost two-thirds of those cases came from just four countries, India, Brazil, Russia, and the United States. We still have a long way to go in this pandemic. So having seen the big picture, let's quickly get caught up on the, the, uh, the medical front right here with Sanjay. Sanjay? Yeah, every week, answer. we're learning so much more about this virus and I think how we should behave with this virus, get together with friends or no, barbecue or skip it. What about play dates and what about swimming pools? We're going to be talking about all that tonight. We know there's been some good news in our efforts to develop a vaccine. There's no doubt that the Moderna trial that you've heard about is still in very early stages, but the fact that they say that eight initial participants developed these special neutralizing antibodies is an important step in the right direction. The news could have been that it didn't work at all, and that would have been back to square one. That could still happen, but so far, things are forging ahead. We know also, Anderson, that Sweden, a country that kept bars and salons and restaurants open in an effort to achieve herd immunity to the coronavirus, seems to have fallen short. Uh, public health authorities there confirmed only around 7% of people in Stockholm mm. have developed these antibodies, far short of the around 70% needed for herd immunity. Unfortunately, as people know, as part of that strategy, the number of deaths reached almost 4,000 in Sweden, whereas neighboring countries, Finland and Norway, have less than 700 deaths combined. We also, more importantly, have more evidence this week that social distancing works. In fact, a new study from Columbia University says if the U.S. had implemented social distancing measures in place just a week earlier, as you mentioned, we could have prevented the loss of, loss of 36,000 lives. So hopefully, uh, Anderson, we don't forget that lesson as we move into Memorial Day weekend. We can be outside. We can have some fun. But we should be reminded of the best strategies to stay safe for ourselves, for our parents, and for our kids. Uh, speaking of which... Kids, how's my little guy doing, Wyatt? Uh, he's doing great. Uh, he, I, he just actually had a bath. I just got a picture. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's doing great. He's, he's, uh, he's just amazing every day. It's just astonishing. I and mean, I must spend hours, several hours today, just kind of sitting there. Staring at him. Holding him. Yeah, he's just, uh, he's great. He's, get, he's focusing more. He's looking around more. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just... It's incredible. It's Can't really, wait to really meet incredible. him. Yeah, um, Sanjay, thanks. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci joins us momentarily, but first, a bit more on how this is all playing out on the ground, state by state. CNN's Erica Hill joins us now with that. So, Erica, when it comes to new cases, where are the most being reported? So I think we have a map.
lineup we can put up for you, which shows you the new cases that have popped up over the past week. And as you can see, uh, there are a number of states, 17, that are trending up, which of course is not what you want to see. Look at those dark red states, Alaska, Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. But there's also a focus on some of the other states that are seeing an increase, specifically Alabama today. We've heard a lot from the mayor of Montgomery, who is very concerned about the situation in his city, saying earlier today there is a shortage of ICU beds and they are concerned about what is to come in that city. Erica, you know, I'm getting a lot of questions. I'm sure you are about the holiday weekend. People typically be getting together, maybe going to the beaches. Uh, so, so what is open and what, what are you hearing about the specific restrictions? So for a lot of places, and I will say just a plug for uh, for our great team here at CNN, there's a wonderful resource on our website at CNN.com where you can look by state to get a better sense of what's open where you are. And oftentimes, what applies to the state may not apply to every local jurisdiction. Florida is a perfect example. Florida's beaches are technically open, uh, but if you want to go to the seven and a half miles of beach in Miami Beach, those remain closed. And the mayor there says it has to do with exactly what you would think. There are concerns about controlling the numbers of people on the beach concerns about social distancing on those public beaches here in New York State, for example. Beaches are open, but not in New York City. Also a concern about social distancing in addition to the public transportation that many people would need to take to get there. Uh, beaches in California, we talk a lot about beaches when we talk about California in LA County. They reopened a short time ago, but just for exercise. So you can go for a run, you can go surfing, but you can't lay on that beach and do uh, a lot of sunbathing and no large groups. Erica Hill. Erica, thanks very much. When we spoke with CNN's David Culver during our last town hall, the Chinese city of Wuhan, where this all began, was launching an effort to test all 11 million people there. David Culver joins us with that and more from Beijing tonight. So, David, where does testing stand in Wuhan right now? Yeah, and you got to think just how massive that city is. It's larger than any U.S. city, uh, larger certainly than New York. I mean, so there are 11 million residents altogether. A good number of that uh, 11 million will be tested ultimately. Not everyone, including children under six, aren't going to be tested. And they're also going to avoid certain people who have been tested in recent days. So there's several days into it, more than a week into it. We know more than three million people have been tested. What's interesting is I was looking at the, this as a possible indication that they might adjust the numbers because we've been very skeptical of, of how low the Chinese numbers are and the figures are. But even just as recently as yesterday, they came out saying that after 800,000 tests, Yesterday alone, there were no new cases. So it seems they are sticking to that number count, at least for now. Uh, as of now, going forward, too, they've also instituted a ban on consumption of wildlife because of the concerns that this originated in that market and that it spread from an animal to human through possibly wildlife consumption. That's within Wuhan as a locality. And it seems like that is just reiterating what they're doing nationally here is trying to crack down on it. Though, you know, you can put out the policy, Anderson and Sanjay. It's another thing to implement it culturally so we'll see how that plays right. out going forward and and david i understand there's also concerns of a, of a second outbreak now in another part of the country uh, what, are you, what are you hearing about that yeah, Sanjay, this is the northeast area. So you're talking about along the border with Russia and with uh, North Korea as well. And what's really interesting about this is we've seen state media over the past several weeks show that China is reopening. And we proved that when we were down in Wuhan and saw that certain things were coming back online, though vast majority of businesses are not back open. And many of them told us they, quite frankly, could not reopen. So when you look at some of these border communities, they are imposing now Wuhan-style lockdowns. And, and they are very strict, sealing people once again inside their homes. And local officials are taking the blame for this. They're being fired for it. 
Uh, and so the central government not very happy with how it's being handled. But these are some of the second wave concerns that even the Dr. Fauci of China, as he's been named, Dr. Zhong Nanshan, told us over the weekend is a real concern that he has over the next few weeks, Anderson Sanjay. And David, you're back in, in Beijing for the first time in months. What's changed since you were last there? Yeah, first time in, in three months. I noticed some holiday decorations are, are still here in, in our office. That's how long we've been away covering this story. Uh, it, it was interesting to see, first of all, how heavy security is here. Now, that's in part because of the National People's Congress, which is the rubber stamp parliament that it gets underway in just a few hours from now. So you have all of the leaders from the country coming together for this assembly. What, what's very intriguing to me is, is this strict process of getting here. Travel domestically within China you have to add another hour and a half, two hours uh, to, to get on a flight because mostly of those of us who are foreigners, they're really concerned about these imported cases. Even though we live here, they take us aside for extra screening. I talked about those QR codes. I've got to say, it, it's somewhat inefficient at times mm. because there are multiple QR codes depending on the jurisdiction. So you find yourself re-registering every time you land in a new city and it becomes a little bit complicated. But uh, overall, they're sticking strictly to that uh, the isolation and really trying to maintain the social distancing, though people mm. seem to be getting a bit complacent at times. Uh, David Culver, David, thanks very much. As always, okay. joining uh, Sanjay me now, taking your, your question shortly, is White House Coronavirus Task Force member Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Fauci, we're incredibly happy that you are here. Uh, we've got audience questions for you, as always, and we're going to start with uh, some of our own. Uh, there's certainly a lot of people who respect you and want to hear from you and Dr. Burks and other health professionals on a daily basis. I guess my first question is, is why aren't we hearing from the coronavirus task force on a daily basis anymore? And if they aren't going to have daily briefings about facts and science, can you or the, the NIH or can the CDC have their own daily briefings with top scientists? Because I think there's a lot of Americans out there who really still want to hear from scientists every day. Yeah, well, well, thank you, Anderson. That's a good point. I think you're going to probably be seeing a little bit more of, of me and, and my colleagues. There was a period of time there was a little bit lull in our being out there with the press, but I, I, I believe that's going to change. We've been talking with the communications people, and they realize we need to get some of these information out, particularly some of the scientific issues for which I'm predominantly responsible for. So hopefully we'll be seeing more of us We'll get the opportunity to talk to you and I'll listen is the way we're doing tonight. And, and I want to be clear, I, I'm not asking to corner you or make things hard for you, but, but just as a citizen, not just as a reporter, um, I personally miss hearing from you and Dr. Burks every day. I know a ton of people I talk to do as well. I know you met with the task force today. It's my understanding that was the first time the task force met in six days. Is the task force still as robust and you know, central in all of this as it was before, or has that now changed? Well, it's changed a bit, but, but in, in, a, in an interesting way, uh, uh, Anderson. For example, we have a subgroup of the task force, which is the doctors, myself, Dr. Burks, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Redfield, et cetera, who we meet much more often than that, talking about some of the scientific issues. The task force as a whole, as you know, the theme has been shifting somewhat. It's looking at the reopening, the economic impact. So there's more of an emphasis on that. But that's not to the diminution of the scientific issues. Like we had a very good discussion today about some of the issues regarding guidelines, about some of the trends and the patterns of infection. So we had a really good meeting today. I was very pleased with it. 
Dr. Fauci, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Moderna, a lot of people have heard this name of this company now, is partnered with the National Institutes of Health, and they announced some positive early results from their vaccine trials this week. You said uh, that was very encouraging. It's, it's early. It's just eight patients where they saw these, these neutralizing antibodies, these special antibodies. It does seem very early. What, what specifically uh, encourages you about this, Dr. Fauci? Yeah, well, well, Sanjay, as you well know, when you're developing a vaccine, there's always landmines and traps along the way to get in the way of the successful completion of developing a safe and effective vaccine. One of the first steps that's important is a phase one trial where you give it to a limited number of people. In this case, we gave it to 45 people, three separate doses. The question is, was it immediately safe? Clearly it was, but importantly, that induce the kind of response that you would predict would be protective against the virus. And that's what's called neutralizing antibodies. When you get a vaccination, you're gonna get antibodies. Some of them are called binding antibodies, where if this were the virus, it binds to this part, but this is the action part of the virus that binds to a receptor. Mm. So if it just binds here, it's almost an irrelevant antibody. Neutralizing antibodies bind to the business end of the virus and block its ability to infect. So what we saw, even though there was only eight individuals, we saw neutralizing antibodies at a reasonable dose of the vaccine and the titers were high enough to get us to believe that if we attain that in more people, in a large number of people, you could predict that that vaccine would be protective. So although the numbers were limited, it was really quite good news because it reached and went over an important hurdle in the development of vaccines. That's the reason why I'm cautiously optimistic about it. And, and one thing that's worth pointing out, I was doing some reporting on this this week, but you worked on HIV for decades. <clears throat> Obviously, there's no vaccine for HIV yet. But my understanding is in the, all those trials, what you just described with those types of neutralizing antibodies, they never achieved that level with HIV vaccine trials in what, several decades. Is that, is that true? That's, that is absolutely correct. I mean, I've been working with my colleagues and trying to develop a vaccine for HIV, for, as you said correctly, for decades. The body doesn't like to make broadly neutralizing antibodies against HIV, the kind of antibodies that would truly prevent you from being infected. With this coronavirus, the body readily makes it. And the reason for that is that with natural infection, the body has a very adequate response. And that's the reason why such a large proportion of people spontaneously recover from the coronavirus infection and really do quite well. Obviously, a certain subset get very sick. Many of them die, but that's a relatively small percentage. Most of the people mount that good response that's a neutralizing antibody, and that's exactly what the patients, not the patients, the normal volunteers did in this phase one study. And that's the reason why, although we're always cautious, it's really a good sign. Um, we gotta take a quick break. Coming up next, your questions uh, for Dr. Fauci. We have a lot of them from our viewers. We'll have that and later more on the questions that so many of us have as the weather gets better and the first big holiday weekend approaches, what will summer look like and how to stay safe in the middle of a pandemic? Plus an exclusive message to America's students from First Lady Melania Trump. That's coming up as well. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
back. Sanjay and I are here with the Coronavirus Task Force member, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's here to answer our questions, and more importantly, yours. Let's get right to them. Our first question is from Nancy in California, who sent in this video. Let's take a look. Our county is now offering free coronavirus testing. There's a local lab that offers antibody testing for a cost. Both are available without a doctor's orders and without symptoms. I, which one would you recommend getting, or would you recommend getting both? Thank you very much. Dr. Fauci? Well, it, yeah, well, that, that's a question that a lot of people are asking. If you want to know if you are infected, then clearly you want the test for infection, namely the test that determines do you have virus in you. If you're interested in knowing if you've been exposed and you have been infected and you've recovered, then the antibody test, unless you have symptoms or have a reason to believe that you've been exposed to someone, there really is no reason to have the test for the virus. It would likely be of more interest to you to see that maybe you were infected, you were one of those many asymptomatic carriers, and now you have an antibody test that shows that you're actually infected. I would say be careful because you want to make sure you use an antibody test that's been validated either by the FDA or by the NIH because there are many tests out there that are not validated and may give you a false positive or even a false negative. Uh, let's, let's get to another question. Uh, Dr. Fauci, Kevin from Atlanta sent in this video. Take a look. I am 72 and in good health. Government orders aside, how will I determine when it is safe for me to go, for example, for a haircut, to a nursery to buy a plant, to Home Depot to buy a garden hose, or to a restaurant for dinner. What metric or other objective criteria am I looking for that will tell me when these activities are okay for me? Thank you. Dr. Fauci, your Great hair question. looks pretty good, by the way, Dr. Fauci. So does Anderson's. My hair's getting a little poofy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's getting there, Sanjay. I really need one soon. I'm looking for one. That's why it's a relevant question that this gentleman asked. But the question is a serious question and important. First of all, it's going to depend on what the dynamics of the outbreak is in the area where you live. If you are in a situation where if you look at the guidelines, the gateway guidelines, the phase one, two, three, if you're in an area where the infection is so low that people are out maybe in phase two and even phase three, even though you're 72 years old, you could do something like get a haircut. If in fact you're in an area where there is a degree of infection, given your age, even though you feel and probably look very healthy, even though because of your age, you can consider yourself to be one of the vulnerable ones. So I would be extra careful compared to, let's say, a 30-year-old or a 25-year-old. But look around you as to the dynamics of the infection in the place where you are living. Right now, for example, I'm in Washington, D.C. We still have a high rate of infection. So you heard Sanjay joking around. There's no way I'm going to get a haircut right now until those infections start coming down. And they are starting to come down. So I think right here in my own city, I very likely will be able to do that. And I am over 70 years old like you are. Uh, this is a question that Brittany sent in, which reads, since there's a one to two week lag in virus symptoms appearing, wouldn't new cases still be declining or flat for at least a week or two after reopening? Shouldn't we wait for at least a couple of weeks before declaring the reopening a success? That's absolutely the case. 
And that's the reason why when you see the reopening that we tell the cities, the locations, the communities to be on the alert for what I refer to as the little blips that you might see. Because as you open up, even under normal circumstances and the best of circumstances, you are gonna see infections. The critical issue for a successful opening is how effectively you address those blips. Do you have in place the capability, the testing and the manpower to identify, to isolate and to contact trace? If you do, you'll be able to prevent those blips from becoming resurgence and you'll be able to progress along the various phases of reopening for hopefully a successful reopening. Dr. Fauci, I'm, I'm wondering what you thought about this new Columbia University study, uh, which showed that if the U.S. began social distancing a week earlier than it did, maybe 36,000 lives could have been saved. I mean, do, do you believe those numbers? I mean, in retrospect now, which is always hard, I understand, but should those measures yeah. have been put in earlier? You know, you're, you're really asking two separate questions. Obviously, if you have measures that were preventing the outbreak of infection and they were successful, the logical thing to say, if you had done it earlier, you likely would have prevented a number of infections. I mean, that's just the way it is. There's no getting away from that. Mm -hmm. However, I have a little skepticism about models. You and I have spoken about models all the time. Models are subject to the suppositions and the assumptions you put into them. So yes, you could always go back and say, I could have, I should have, I would have. That's behind us. What we need to look right now, I would much prefer, rather than looking what could have been done, is to say, how are we gonna successfully reopen, re-enter the normality and do it in a safe way? That's what I'm focusing on. The, the trend that we're seeing, certain states showing increasing numbers rather than, than neutral numbers, numbers staying stable or, or falling numbers, what does that tell you? Um, is, I mean, A, do, does, it, the, does it surprise you, the, the numbers of states that are rising, the number of states that have numbers still falling, the number of states that are, are stable? Well, it doesn't surprise me because we're a large country, Anderson, and we have different dynamics of the outbreak in different cities, states, regions, and counties. So what I will say is what I've said on your show multiple times in the past. Look at the dynamics in your community, in your city or whatever, and act accordingly. If you're still going up, you've got to maintain mitigation. You've got to maintain physical separation, mask wearing, the kinds of mitigations of restaurants, bars, etc. And you've got to do that until you start coming down. That's in the guidelines. They're very clearly spelled out. If you're coming down, then you get into the situation of trying to progress from one phase to the other towards opening. It really depends on what's going on in your community. So I'm not surprised at all at the heterogeneity that we're seeing some going up and some going down. We're a large country with varied dynamics of the outbreak. We got uh, Ro Rob Williams, uh, Dr. Fauci from North Carolina, sent in this video. Let's take a look. Recent news reported other countries revealed that people who recover from the coronavirus are still testing positive. For the virus test cannot differentiate between the virus of the dead cells versus living virus cells. 
My question is, could this mean that some asymptomatic people maybe are not contagious? Also, do the U.S. testing kits work the same way as they would in other countries? Can they tell the difference? Yeah, that's that's a really good question that's being asked a lot. So let me put it in context and with some some basis for why there is concern. So you get infected. The virus replicates in you. The test that we do only tells you if the virus is there. It doesn't tell you if it's replicating. So you could have a virus that stops replicating, your body has suppressed it, and you still have viral particles. We call them nucleotides. So the test that you use is not gonna tell whether it's a live virus or a dead virus. So it is conceivable, and I would say likely, that I would be infected I would recover, and then you'd start to see maybe a week or two or more later, when you test me, I still have detectable virus. It is likely, though we don't prove it yet, you prove it by culturing the virus, Mm -hmm. but it's likely that that remnants of virus that are not replication competent. You can't be cavalier about it. You can't say, well, I'm gonna be assuming that's not replication competent. You gotta make sure you clear it even by the tests that we use. So it's not an uncommon phenomenon to have people feel perfectly well as if they've recovered, which they have clinically, but they still have detectable virus. So Dr. Fauci, just finally, what's your message to Americans going into Memorial Day weekend? Uh, what precautions should, should they be taking? You know, Anderson, it depends on where you are. As I keep getting back to that theme, it depends on the dynamics of the outbreak, where you are. But wherever you are, I mean, Memorial Day, it's it's a very important holiday. Hopefully the sun will be out. We'll be having people who want to get out there and get fresh air. You can do that. We're not telling people to just lock in unless you're in a situation where you have a major outbreak going on. We don't have too much of that right now in the country. Go out, wear a mask, stay six feet away from anyone so you have the physical distancing and go out, go for a run, go for a walk. Go fishing, as long as you're not in a crowd and you're not in a situation where you can physically transmit the virus. And that's what a mask is for, and that's what the physical distance. I plan to go out for nice walks and hikes over Memorial Day, and I'm gonna do it with care, with a mask on. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much. We hope to see more of you, and we appreciate it. Just ahead, answers to more coronavirus questions, including more on how to enjoy Memorial Day and the summer safely. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back to CNN's Global Town Hall, Coronavirus, Facts and Fears. Before the break, you heard Dr. Anthony Fauci answering a question about when it's safe to go back outside, particularly as Memorial Day weekend starts tomorrow. He said a quote is going to depend what the dynamics of the outbreak is where you live. If it's still going up, he said, you still need to maintain mitigation. He said, regardless, you should be wearing a mask and social distancing. Yeah, and along those lines, we now want to focus on what reopening may mean for your community. Now that the weather is warming, more people are going outside and in some places starting to congregate in bigger numbers. So joining us is uh, Julia Marcus, an infectious disease epidemiologist and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Welcome. Welcome, Julia. Thanks for as Memorial Day and, and beyond approaches, there are obviously going to be a lot of people who want to be outside. What kind of guidance do you think there needs to be on what's considered safe? 
Yeah, I think up until now, we've had kind of an all or nothing approach where we've really been telling people to stay home, which is what we needed to do for the um, the first couple months. And then we realized this is actually something we're going to need to be doing for many months, if not years. And so we have to find a way to do this sustainably. So I was very happy to hear Dr. Fauci encouraging people to go outside and just avoid crowds, maintain physical distancing and wear masks. And I, I think that's the approach we need moving forward is to encourage people to be outdoors um, where we know that the risk of transmission is much lower. Yeah, and I mean, it's a wider space. The, the, the virus disperses more outside. There's risks still, you know, because the virus is still spreading. But from what I understand, uh, Julia, you, you sort of advocate this harm reduction model. Uh, that's what I was reading in your writing, they, they, that health experts can sort of help folks differentiate between what is considered high risk and low risk. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so I think what we've been doing so far has been more of an abstinence-only approach, huh. where we've said, stay home, that's the safest thing to do, which is absolutely true. But what it does is it misses an opportunity to support people in engaging in low-risk behaviors that are going to be more sustainable in the long term. And harm reduction is an alternative public health approach where we accept that risk elimination is not possible. And I think we can all agree that we need to have social contact and we can't just stay indoors until we have a vaccine. And so instead of that abstinence only model, we can give people a sense of a spectrum of risk, what some of the lowest risk activities are all the way up to the highest risk and give them tools to reduce harm in every setting. So what, let's talk about some of those activities, swimming, whether it's in the ocean, in a lake, uh, in a community pool, how, you know, what are the protocols? What's, what's harm reduction in that? I think, um, as we heard from Dr. Fauci, the most important thing is, is physical distancing. And there's no particular risk with water. It's just if there's crowding in a pool, then you run into the same problem you would have with crowding in any other outdoor setting. So I think um, as much as we can encourage beaches to be open and, and you know open up more outdoor space, we will be able to maintain that physical distancing if we have more space for people to use. And some of this is just common sense, wear masks, stay six feet apart, don't share food or, or drinks, pass around stuff across the table. Um, but there are those who might just break common sense rules. What is the best way to handle, you know, handle that, do you think? I think with this harm reduction approach, we need to try to reduce harms for everyone. And one of the side effects of abstinence-only messaging is that people can start to shame others for, for what seems to be risky behavior. And the problem with that is it can drive that behavior underground. So you can imagine that if we start to see people gathering in a park, not wearing masks, standing too close together, if we do shame people for that and call them out on social media, um, then what they might do is take that indoors and have a dinner party instead, which we know is going to be actually higher risk. And the last thing we want is for contact tracers to be trying to trace people who may have been exposed in an outbreak and people not being willing to disclose that they attended an event. Yeah, you make this interesting point, uh, Julie, that public health campaigns that only promote the total elimination of risk could, could actually backfire. I guess that's what you're saying, uh, and that could lead to worse outcomes. That's right. I mean, that's what we see in the case of abstinence-only messaging for sex. If we tell teens, you know, don't have any sex, that's the safest thing you can do, it's true, that's the safest thing they can do, but the reality is people are going to have sex and, and that's a part of a healthy life. And mm. so the problem there is that when people do choose to take those risks, they don't have the tools that they need to reduce any potential harm. So we're missing an opportunity to give people tools to reduce risk. Mm. 
Uh, Julian Marcus, really appreciate what you do. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Also, a reminder, just at the bottom of your screen, you're going to see our social media scroll shows the questions that people are asking. You can tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. We're giving answers there as well to the, some of those questions. Back now with Sanjay, we also want to bring in Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency room physician and former Baltimore health commissioner, to help answer more of your coronavirus questions tonight. So, Dr. Wen, you just wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about how people should think about risk as, as states are reopening. Do you agree with what Julia Marcus said? And as a health expert, what would you suggest as kind of best practices in spending time outdoors? Yes, yeah, so I do agree with Julia that we need to think about harm reduction. We know that anytime people will be interacting with one another outside of their household, there is risk. And so we need a framework for deciding which activities are lower risk or higher risk than others. So I think we should think about three variables. We should think about proximity, activity, and time. So if you're going to get together with your friends, best to do it outdoors six feet apart. That's proximity. You can also change your activities. So don't hug and kiss and share utensils. That reduces risk too. And if you're going out, takeout is still safer. And if you're going to be sitting in a restaurant, ideally sit outside, um, spend less time, maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, not an hour. That changes the time also. We get a lot of questions about from grandparents about whether they can see their grandkids. And there's the idea of pooled risk. So families that all have low risk can actually safely be with each other if they all are engaged in low risk behaviors. And then also risk is cumulative. So just because you now can go out and your state is reopened, don't go out and do everything. So if you're going to go get your haircut, don't also go out to a restaurant. Hmm. And ultimately, these are individual decisions. But what we do as individuals affect others too. And so wearing a mask, practicing physical distancing also helps to reduce the collective mm -hmm. risk for everyone as well. Sanjay, Jeff in, in Texas sent in this video, let's watch. Why do the social distancing rules being enforced at parks, restaurants, bars, concerts, and sporting events not apply to seating on airplanes? Yeah, now that, that, that's a good point. And, you know, obviously airlines are trying to uh, figure out how they're going to navigate this. I think the, the guidance for a lot of people still is, again, depending on what your risk is within your community, how much the virus is spreading in your community, that you may need to uh, just travel only when it's essential right now. I mean, that may change as the summer goes on. We're going to get more and more guidance on that. But I think whenever you do any of these things, you've got to sort of get an idea um, what is what is the risk reward proposition here? What is my real risk? What is the need that I uh, that actually? Why do I really need to do this? Why do I need to travel in this case? And Sanjay, you have a tutorial for us. Yeah, let's take a look. Things are going to feel a lot different the next time you go to the airport. First of all, it'll be less crowded. That's for sure. Certain precautions are in place, like plexiglass at the counters, Thank you. telling people to keep their distance when they're in line. Most people already do this, but don't forget to put your boarding pass on your phone ahead of time. Less surfaces to touch. Let me see your ID card, please. Yep. Try and count how many surfaces you touch throughout the whole process. Need everything out of your pockets, please. I'm pushing there. Second bin that I'm touching. One thing I do want to show you is how I pack nowadays. I got my hand sanitizer. You saw how many surfaces I just touched. So this is when I do a little hand sanitizer constantly wash the hands. This train is departing. Please stay six feet away from your One of the 
the big concerns is always going to be those sorts of train rides. Right now, things aren't that crowded, but as airports start to pick up, you may want a lot extra time so that you can walk to the concourse instead of ride. Everyone is gonna decide whether or not it makes sense to fly. It's the sort of risk-reward proposition. One thing I'll tell you is that separating yourselves out, obviously important, that's the distance. But think about the duration. Shorter flights are obviously going to be better. Also, they say that the plane has been sterilized before we actually get on using this electrostatic sterilization process. Now, when you get to your row, a couple things to keep in mind. First, try and touch as few surfaces as possible. And when I sit down, I'm actually going to try and choose a window seat. And the reason being uh, that I'll just have less contact with people who are walking by the aisle. Go ahead and turn on what's called the gasper here. And you turn it up as high as you can. That's gonna cause some turbulent airflow in front of you and possibly break up any clouds of virus. These are small things. They may make a small difference, but it's easy to do and it's probably worth it. Wow, fascinating. I mean, it, it is, I mean, flying is just, it's a scary prospect right now, especially for the, those who are working on the aircraft. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I noticed at the airport as well. All the frontline workers, all the people working there are wearing masks. And, you know, a, a fair number of the, the passengers are as well. But they're the, you know, you wear the mask again to protect other people. So the frontline workers are there all day and another reason to try and be as safe as possible. Yeah, I'm amazed that all flyers are not wearing masks or, or being told to wear masks when they get on a plane. I mean, uh, Dr. Wen, this is a question Lola sent in from Kentucky, which reads, now that stay-at-home orders are being lifted around the country, how safe is it to have an elective surgery done? Are you at higher risk of catching the virus if you go to the hospital and stay overnight after surgery? Yeah, so it depends on the part of the country, as Dr. Fauci said, but I will say that we are in general safer now than we were back in March because hospitals have had time to prepare and they all have new protocols for protecting patients. So it's not 100% safe, but it is pretty safe. And there are things that you can do, including limiting the amount of time that you're in the hospital, but don't leave too early either before you're ready to leave because if you develop complications and have to return, mm. that increases your risk too. Sanjay, Michael in Lithuania sent in this video. Let's watch. What is the effectiveness of shelter at home in reducing deaths? We have no baseline data for this coronavirus. We do have a prior year's data for the deadly flu virus. Flu is different, but as a virus, it should still be affected to some degree by shelter at home. What can we learn about the efficacy of at-home sheltering's impact in reducing flu deaths this year that might help us understand our safety choices better. That's a, it's a great point. So the impact of stay-at-home orders on other viruses uh, such as flu. You know, it's interesting, it's, it's been, uh, we're still in the middle of, of season here, so we haven't gotten the final numbers for this year. We have been looking at this on a community by community basis around the country, and you do see communities that typically have higher rates of flu and even higher rates of flu deaths that are lower this year. Again, it's hard to directly correlate this to the stay-at-home orders, but it makes perfect sense. And in, in different times throughout history, when you've had mandatory stay-at-home because of an ice storm or something like that, you do see infectious disease rates go down, ER visits for those rates go down as well. So it probably has had an impact on other infectious diseases as well. Yeah, and you would expect with masks and, and hand-washing right. that it would also have an impact. Dr. Wynn, this is a question Gail sent in, which reads, with an abundance of caution, I heed any takeout food at home. 
Can you tell me what oven temp and time frame would be advised to kill any virus? Also, how long in a microwave would be sufficient? Yeah, so this coronavirus is not a foodborne illness, and so you're not going to get it from eating food. You could have the abundance of caution and just make sure that you transfer from the takeout container to your own bowl, and you could heat it for 30 seconds. Um, but the most important thing is to wash your hands after you touch the container very well. Uh, this question, Dr. Wen, uh, John sent in from Oregon, which reads, has any other pandemic in history breached the White House? It's a good question, and the answer is yes. So during the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, there were a number of people close to President Wilson who got ill, um, including Secret Service agents, the president's personal secretary, and even his oldest daughter. And there are reports, too, that President Wilson himself came down with severe flu-like symptoms. Hmm. And so it's a reminder that none of us are immune hmm. and that the president and everybody around him should be practicing good public health practices like wearing a mask at all times, practicing six feet social distancing, and also quarantining themselves if they have high-level exposure. Sanjay, this uh, next video question is from Joe. He's living down in Florida until it's safe for him and his wife, he says, to, to drive back home to New York. Let's watch. If there is a smoker in the area with COVID-19 and the smoke is reaching you and you can smell it, does that mean the airborne virus is also reaching you, even though you may be six feet or more away? Thank you. Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, that's unlikely. Uh, you know, the thing about these re this respiratory virus, you think about the virus sort of in these respiratory droplets. That's part of the reason it's not going to travel as far just from normal talking or breathing. Smoke is actually going is obviously going to travel further. So six feet is a is a good. It's arbitrary, obviously, but it's a good frame of reference for just talking, normal breathing. If someone is symptomatic coughing or sneezing, then obviously they can spread those respiratory droplets further. And I think if people have taken nothing else away, uh, regardless of whether in the middle of a COVID pandemic, if you have symptoms, you should probably stay home. Even if you think the symptoms aren't from the infection, because you could still carry the virus, you could still be coughing due to asthma or something else and still be spreading the virus further as a result. Mm. Dr. Wen, uh, Ellen in New York State sent in this video. Let's watch. How can I safely ride in an elevator? I have no choice. I'm a senior and I live on a very high floor. Hmm. Dr. Dr. Wen? Yeah, it's challenging because you can't control this. You do have to ride in the elevator, but you can ask your building if there's a policy. Some buildings have policies for limiting the number of occupants now because of COVID-19 to increase physical distancing. You could also do your best with wearing a mask. If you're touching the elevator button, use a tissue to touch it or use your elbow and then sanitize afterwards. Try to use the elevator during non-peak times and of course stay as far away from people as possible. Also, some elevators I know even have, you know, kind of foot uh, positioning where it's ideal to, to stand and to, in an attempt to kind of limit the number of people in the elevator. Dr. Wen, as always, thank you so much. Our scene on Global Town Hall continues after the break with an hour dedicated entirely to education. We're going to talk with a leading uh, pediatrician about the changes needed to keep school kids health, uh, health, uh, healthy and contain any outbreaks of the virus. Two award-winning teachers and the acclaimed educator Jeffrey Canada join us as well. Also, the president of Notre Dame University on his new plan to do what many other such institutions are not, bringing students back on campus this fall. And later, a special message from the First Lady to all the kids who now call mom and dad teacher. 
After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome to our 12th CNN Global Town Hall Coronavirus Facts and Fears. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. And this hour, we're going to do a special look at how the outbreak is affecting how we educate our kids. Not only right now, but coming this fall and even beyond that, it's one of the most common questions we get at the bottom of your screen. You can see our social media scroll. Tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. We have a lot ahead. We're going to be hearing from some of the top educators in the country. Also, a university president who's planning for the return of students in the fall. A business school professor who sees profound and accelerating changes ahead for higher education. And two experts in psychology, including Angela Duckworth, the author of Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. They're here to take questions on the impact this is having and will continue to have on kids and parents alike. First, a quick overview. There are more than 50 million students currently enrolled in the U.S. public education system, and the majority of them stopped going to school in mid-March. Something I could not in a million years have imagined having to do. So how are students learning? Most schools have transitioned to online classes, but not every student has access to a computer, a quiet place to study, or high-speed internet. And the public school system is about more than just education. For many, it's a safe and reliable form of childcare, and also a place where kids can count on a hot meal. But social distancing is nearly impossible without a complete overhaul of how classrooms operate. I think we would be naive to ever think about American schools going back to the way that they were. Then there's the issue of higher education. Some institutions, like the California State University system, have already canceled in-person classes for their fall semester while others, like Notre Dame, have shortened their fall semester and have canceled classes on campus after Thanksgiving, anticipating a second wave of the virus in the winter. The future of college sports is also up in the air. There's a chance some seasons could be canceled altogether next year. Many institutions are worried that students will choose not to return. Online learning or reduced services on campus without sports may not be worth the hefty tuition for some. I definitely think that this is a much lesser experience than what I would be getting if I was on campus. There's no single plan on how to deal with all this and no clear guidance from the federal government on how to move forward with reopening in the fall. So university heads and local school districts are making their own plans. We're considering minimizing the number of students that come on certain days and also staggering the arrivals and then actually having lunch in the classrooms. Schools around the globe are already trying new approaches. Look at this classroom in China. The paper hats on these children may seem like an art project, but they have a purpose, to remind kids to stay away from each other. This could be the future in the U.S. as well, come September or even later. And we want to talk more about that future now with Dr. Tanya Altman. She will be taking your questions as well. Dr. Altman is a pediatrician, a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics, a school physician and the mother of three school-age boys. She's also helping advise schools in Southern California on their plans to reopen. So thanks very much for, uh, for taking what little, little time you must have. I'm not sure how you have any time at all, but thanks for joining us. Dr. Altman, you, you've written about how schools are going to need to, to solve three major problems in the fall to be able to keep kids safe. Can you just quickly explain what you see, what you see as those problems? 
Sure. So the three strategies that schools are going to have to figure out is one, how to keep the virus from entering the campus. So that's going to be health checks and temperature screening, staggered arrivals, as you mentioned, and limiting visitors on campus. The second is how to decrease person-to-person -person transmission on campus. And this is going to be smaller classrooms, less mixing of kids, um, closed commonly touched areas, a lot of hand washing with assigned seats, disinfecting, avoiding shared supplies, and also mask use is going to play a key role. And then the third is the strategies when someone does get sick, because we know unfortunately it is going to happen, we need to quickly test them, diagnose, isolate, and then contact trace, which is a lot easier when there's fewer kids that they've come into mm. contact with throughout the day. Let's let's drill down a little bit on that with some of the viewer questions here. Uh, we, we got a lot of them for you, Dr. Altman, from kids, parents, and teachers. Uh, this is from eight-year-old Udea, who I think is asking a question that's probably on the mind of every kid in America. Take, take a listen. My question is, is it safe to go back to school in the fall? What do you think, so Dr. Altman? So that's a great question, Udaya, and that's what teachers and administrators and pediatricians and health professionals are working on across the country. It's not going to be the same school day that you're used to. It's going to be a new normal school day, but it will be as safe as we can make it. This next question uh, came in via Twitter from our, with our hashtag uh, CNN Town Hall. It's at the bottom of the screen. It reads, how are parents supposed to feel safe sending our children with underlying health conditions back to school? So that's going to be a really important consideration, as we know that some kids are more medically fragile. And that's why it's really going to take everybody. Everybody's going to have to agree that we're going to follow all the same rules, that everybody is going to stay physically distanced, that they're going to wear masks, that they're going to wash hands. And parents are going to have to promise that they will not send sick kids to school. Yeah, they can be really diligent about that more now more than ever. Uh, this is a question, doctor, from uh, Fernando from Illinois, which reads, uh, is there a possibility that some kids and teenagers will be asked not to, to, to not return to school if someone in their immediate family has tested positive for COVID-19? Definitely, that is a real consideration. And that's why a lot of schools are looking at, you know, in addition to having in-person classes, they're also still gonna have to have a form of online or virtual school because kids may be quarantined if one of their parents have COVID or if they have symptoms or if they're waiting for test results. Or there might be some kids where the parents just don't feel comfortable sending them right. to school or the kids have <laughs> underlying health conditions. Todd in, uh, in Texas sent in this video. Hello, my question is, when will the conversation focus equally on the safety of teachers as it is the students? Safety from the virus, but also from losing their job because of getting sick or fear of passing the virus to compromised family members? Doctor? You're absolutely right. And keeping our teachers and staff healthy. And let's not forget that many of them are older and maybe in the vulnerable population themselves. So having all the kids wear masks and wash their hands and the teachers as well. Some teachers will be wearing face shields, staying a little bit of distance from the students and all these things that we're talking about, all these safety measures that we're putting into place are just as important for the teachers as they are for the students. Yeah. And we have to start thinking about these things now for the fall and people identifying potentially as vulnerable as well. Uh, Judith in North Carolina, doctor, sent in this video. Take a look. Hi, my name is Judy Grimshaw, and I have a question. I'm a preschool teacher, and I want to know how are they going to open up preschools and toddler rooms and daycare safely when kids that young don't understand social distancing, and they really don't 
understand how not to put things in their mouth. So how can we all go back safely? Um, that's my question. Thank you. And it is more challenging for the youngest children. So we're gonna work with small classes and try to keep those kids with that small group of maybe six to 10 students because we know we can't totally keep them apart. We can only do our best. We can also give them each their own toys to play, frequently wash them. We can make sure that they have their recess time outside separate from other classes on the yard and then have them, you know, rotate through as they're learning to use the bathroom so we can fully, you know, disinfect it between classes. There's a lot of important strategies, but the teachers and administrations are so creative that I'm talking to and they are coming up with solutions because we just want to get our kids back to school mm. so they can learn. Um, there's another video. This is from Jeff in Sacramento. My question is how to safely teach physical education. And my position, like many PE teachers, I teach every K-5 student during the week. My concern is about the use of equipment. Am I endangering students who share equipment during a class? For example, can students play catch with a ball? What advice do you have for physical education teachers here in the US and internationally? Physical education is such an important component of our school day. And one of the good things is that weather permitting, you can do it outside. And we know that just being outside dramatically decreases the risk of transmission. Now, maybe instead of playing catch, kids will be doing more soccer where they're kicking the ball because you do want to avoid, you know, touching the same balls and surfaces as other kids. And again, they should be doing PE class in the same small group of kids that they're already with during their normal school hours. So keeping the kids in these small groups where they don't mix is also going to help. You can also do a lot of old fashioned, you know, calisthenics, and there will be some sports that we will have to reimagine and do in a different way to help decrease the risk of transmission of virus. Do you think, doctor, there's gonna be some things that just aren't gonna be able to happen? Choir, for example, uh, things like that, where people are singing or, or uh, wind instruments, whatever it may be? That's a great question. And we were just discussing doing choir and wind instruments outside at my school with the kids in a semicircle. And of course, that's only weather permitting. But being in Southern California, we're going to use a lot of outdoor space and tents. But you're right. We can't have kids in a room blowing, you know, on the person standing in front of them. We also won't be having large assemblies. So assemblies might be zoomed into the classroom. Library time, I picture it being virtual where maybe the books are just dropped off in the class and kids won't actually be able to physically go to the library. We got another question. Uh, this one's coming over social media. It's there at the bottom of the screen. Um, how can students do social distancing when it comes to the school bus? Hmm. So buses are going to be another area where we're really going to have to take a look. And ideally, we would screen and temperature check kids before they get on the bus. They're going to have to be spread out. So I know in our area, we're trying to encourage families that don't rely on and need the bus to drive their kids to school. But many kids do need the buses. So we may need to have more buses because they will need to spread out. If they have assigned seats, that will also help if we do need to contact Trace. And then again, you know, sanitizing hands and masks before you get on the bus. Um, it's going to be difficult. Uh, Dr. Altman, appreciate it. We are joined now truly by three educational all-stars. Jeffrey Canada is president of the Harlem Children's Zone, which the New York Times has called, quote, one of the most ambitious social policy experiments of our time. Also, Baker High School science teacher and 2020 Montana Teacher of the Year, Linda Rost, and 2020 Louisiana Teacher of the Year, Chris Deere, a social studies teacher in the pride of Shelmet High. Appreciate all of you being, uh, being with us. Linda, in addition to being a high school science teacher, I know you're also a mom to three kids, what do you make of what Dr. Altman just said about returning to the classroom? It just sounds 
I mean, there are so many moving parts to this. It's it's uh, it's daunting. I think as a mother of young children, I can really understand the challenges to implementing these strategies for young kids. So I think that it's going to be all hands on deck and we're all going to have to be working together to put some of these strategies to work. Uh, Jeffrey, you know, from Montana to the inner city of New York, how could students socially distance in a classroom for for, for real in, in a safe way? And do you, do you think that some kids just might be afraid to return to school after hearing all this? You know, Sanjay, I'm really worried uh, that we're going to have a mental health epidemic uh, among our children in this country. Just think about it. Uh, the poorest kids, they know people who died. They know people who are sick. The very air you breathe, the people you pass on the street are suddenly uh, dangerous to you. Uh, all of that trauma is going to come into our schools uh, and into our classrooms. And we really need to prepare for this. I'm so uh, glad that you all are focusing on education uh, because we can't all figure this out one by one by ourselves. We need to get the best practice. We need to start thinking about this. Uh, but just think, I've taught for 10 years. And I've gotten my kids together and I'm now I have to keep all of my kids apart. Uh, that's a skill uh, that we have to practice. And we need time uh, for teachers to begin to practice the kind of monitoring, the talking, the engaging that doesn't really gather kids together in ways that we're used to. So I think we got to use this summer uh, to have some dry runs, to learn some new skills and learn some new monitoring so that we can really keep our children safe. Chris, I mean, what about you? I mean, the, the work-life balance, the school-life balance, it changed for everyone. What, what additional responsibilities have your students taken on? And as their teacher, you know, what, what efforts have you taken to kind of try to bridge the, the classroom to home gap? Sure. We've seen so many issues within education that uh, these inequities existed prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic has certainly highlighted them, just as your other teachers here were saying. Uh, one being lack of internet. So we've, we've had students who just simply don't have access to internet or have limited internet. I have a student that is uh, one of five and she has to share a la one laptop with an entire family so she can only get on in certain days. So I also have students who uh, are picking up, you know, essential jobs. So a lot of that, a lot of issues students are facing are things that we're not really uh, given as much weight as they deserve. I mean, we have students that have lost loved ones and have, have had family members who have survived from COVID-19 or have lost jobs. So, so students are taking a lot on and teachers, we're doing everything that we can to, to try to keep that learning going and keep those, those connections happening. You know, I, I gotta say, uh, Linda, as a father of three uh, school-age girls, I, I was amazed at just how quickly things changed. They had to, right? All of a sudden, they're all doing remote learning. It was remarkable uh, how fast that happened. But as you know, as Chris is pointing out, you, you do have to have certain things. You have to have a laptop. You have to have the internet. It's not a reality for all students. So what do you do? I mean, what happens in those situations? I think that you have to be really flexible with your students. I think that, that that is the reality and that's the world that we're living in. And so we have to give them grace and understanding and be creative about how they can go about their learning. So sometimes that might mean a phone call instead of doing the lesson, you might do it over the phone. It might be a letter. Hmm. There might be other ways that we can facilitate learning than using that technology. 
Jeff, Jeffrey, it, it's great to see you. I've profiled you on 60 Minutes. I'm a, obviously a, a huge admirer of you, of you personally. Um, in New York City, Mayor de Blasio announced a, a new grading system. He said that more than 200,000 iPads were available to students. I, I, I mean, that just seems like, you know, that's great, but it does seem like a drop in the bucket just when you think about the enormous challenges for so many kids. That this is unprecedented. Uh, we've always worried in poor kids about the summer melt, right? The kids are not academically engaged over the summer. They come to school actually behind. We've thrown another three months on top of that. And then on top of that, we've thrown teachers and iPads with no training, with no best practice, and we're all trying to figure this thing out. Uh, I think it's an educational disaster right now. Plus, you have the issue that was mentioned before. Some kids don't have internet. They don't have devices. They don't have headphones. There may be only two devices for five kids. Uh, that's education malpractice. Uh, we need right now to have uh, every state government, the federal government say education right now is in crisis. And we need to treat this the same way we're treating the health crisis, because after all, uh, if we care about income inequality, we are seeing it develop right in front of our eyes. So what, what do you do, uh, Jeffrey? I mean, if you, when you go into the government, what are you specifically asking for, especially if in the fall we find ourselves in a very similar position again? Yeah, so there, there are a couple of things, by the way, uh, Andrzej, we need to do. Uh, number one, uh, we've got to make sure every kid has a device, and, and we've got to make sure Internet. Internet is the same as having books today. Right? You can't have some students with no internet connection and no devices uh, when we know there's a good chance schools are going to have to close periodically uh, over the course of the next 18 months. Uh, and we need to not cut the budgets of schools because I'm looking at these state and city budgets and I'm saying, wait a second, at the moment we need to be thinking about how to get more space. Uh, get more room to have classes in so we can social distance. Mm. We can't be cutting budgets and teachers and not investing in our young people. And I just feel this coming right now that people are going to say we can't afford uh, to actually provide the education supports necessary in this country, particularly in the poorest communities. Uh, and that's something that we're going to have to fight to stop from happening. We need additional investment. And while we're throwing trillions of dollars in lots of places, we need to make sure we're investing in education. So these great educators on this show, that they really have a fair chance uh, to educate the kids uh, during this uh, pandemic. Chris, what's your greatest fear come the fall? Um, well, first off, I wholeheartedly agree with Mr. Canada. This is, we need more uh, funding for education to address these concerns, these inequities and these uh, mental health concerns. But my biggest fear is that these gaps that, that are accruing at the moment, that they're gonna continue to, to get uh, larger and students are gonna come back in the fall and they're not gonna be on an equal footing. And many times they're already not on an equal footing because we see these inequities in education. But I think that gap is gonna be even bigger. So students, uh, they're, they're gonna need you know social and emotional learning just as much as academic learning. They're gonna need uh, the help of mentors, of counselors of social workers so it really is all hands on deck when when fall comes around and, and linda you're a science teacher which is near and dear to my heart for sure uh are there things that you're doing in particular with the classroom around the covid pandemic uh, uh in terms of science are you trying to use that as a teaching tool 
Yes, I absolutely am. Um, I think right away my students had a lot of fears and they were confused about what was happening. And so I took that opportunity to replace their fears with facts. And right at the beginning, I explained to them what was happening. I explained about the virus and how the pandemic was affecting us and how to understand how our behaviors can influence that. And then I also, I wasn't really sure how to approach their learning when it came to the virus. So mm. I asked them for their help in, in showing me how to, how to facilitate their learning. And um, they wanted to do open-ended COVID projects. So they got to pick the topic. They got to pick how they showed their learning and how they kind of showcased that and shared it with the world. And I had students doing projects. Some of them were looking at the economic effects of, of the pandemic or um, insurance policies and how that would influence people's treatment. I had one student who looked at how we could facilitate social distancing in different high school rodeo events. And then I also had another one who was looking at a coronavirus in cattle, and she wanted to be able to see whether the, the vaccine that was used for that coronavirus would be effective against COVID to show that it would. So um, it was really amazing to see how, how they led their learning around this virus, and they were able to understand the pandemic better through that. You know, I, I'm curious, Anderson asked Chris about, you know, what he's most worried about. What are you most worried about? And, and I guess I would also add to that, again, as a father of three kids, how, how much different or how much, um, how would you quantify the quality of, of this sort of teaching, learning that my kids have been going through the last few months as compared to last year at this time? Oh, okay. I absolutely can speak to that. So I think number one, we probably would see that we're maybe serving 50 or 60% of our students at a basic level. And then there's probably 40 or 50% of our students who are falling through the cracks and we're losing uh, a proportion of that also. And so I think we need to look at that too and how we can serve that, that half um, better. And I also think that I can actually measure in, in, my, in my own classroom that I'm doing online now, how much they're learning about the concepts that we're learning about through COVID compared to last year. And I can see that there's a drop in their understanding. And some students understand it well, regardless, it doesn't matter what method we use, but there are really others that we're losing and I'm really concerned about that. Also, just finally, Jeffrey, you know, it, it, you talked about this coming, you know, wave of, of emotion and, and uh, mental health issues this is coming at a time when a lot of kids, their families have been decimated in ways that these kids have never seen. Their families are out of work. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, so many people are out of work right now. The, uh, the idea of, you know, a family being able to get an extra computer or get any computer, uh, it's just not realistic. No, it's not realistic. And uh, Anderson, you, you've really sort of set the table for what's happening in so many of our poorest communities. <clears throat> the parents are traumatized. Uh, they've lost their jobs. They don't know how they're going to pay their rent. Uh, they can't buy the medications. They're worried about their mothers and fathers who are in the next room and are 75 and 80 years old. And all the while, uh, they're, they're terrified that their children are not focused uh, the children are not paying attention. Uh, they don't want to go on the devices. So you've got people right now, families, uh, that are traumatized. And the safest place for children uh, is the school. Uh, and we've got to figure out a way how uh, we can open our schools safely, keep them safe, uh, make sure that we learn best practice from all around the, the, the world about how you can engage students. Because as much as I love technology and we need to have it, you cannot replace uh, the interaction between a student and a teacher. Uh, all of us have teachers that we just loved 
because we felt their love for us and their passion uh, for the students in their classroom. That's hard to come over uh, by video uh, or using technology. So we got to figure out how to do this and we got to figure out how to do it smart mm. and we need the resources to get it done. Uh, and Anderson, I've been waiting to say this to you for many, many years. Uh, happy early Father's Day. Uh, <laughs> I'm just so excited about that. Thank you. Do you decide, you. Jay, but I needed to get Anderson. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah, well, I can't believe that that suddenly applies to me. It's uh, astonishing me every day. Uh, uh, thank you guys, everybody, so much for, for what you do. Uh, not just what you're doing right now, but for what you've all always done. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Thank you. Uh, coming up next, we'll, we'll talk to the president of Notre Dame University on plans to bring students back to campus this fall and the questions he's getting about how to ensure college kids' safety on campus. Also, later, First Lady Melania Trump's message to students and her advice to them on getting through the coming weeks. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. I'm Fred Plekin in Denmark, and this country is rapidly reopening its schools. Now, one of the things that you don't see in Danish schools is students or teachers wearing masks. It's something that the Danes don't believe in. But you do see a lot of hand sanitizing and a lot of hand washing. This school, for instance, has these basins here so children can wash their hands at any point in time. Also, there's a lot of taped off areas to make sure that kids don't get too close to each other and keep that physical distance. Now, this school in particular is a really interesting one. Because of the physical distancing measures, they didn't have enough space for all the students to come back. So they actually moved some of their lessons into the local church. So they do math lessons from the church with the teacher standing in the pulpit. And they even do some of the lessons for statistics in the local church graveyard because there are a lot of numbers on all those headstones. And the Danish government actually encourages that. They say schools should do as many lessons as possible outside. Seeing Fred Plekton in Copenhagen. We're going to be showing you those type of dispatches from around the world throughout this uh, hour to show how other countries are managing this and how things could look in the United States come the fall. For now, here at home, the Chronicle of Higher Education surveyed more than 700 schools on their plans, and 67%, more than two out of three, said they are working toward in-person instruction. Now, this week, Notre Dame University announced a plan to reopen campus for a truncated term this fall. Sanjay and I spoke with the university president, Father John Jenkins, earlier. Father Jenkins, to the parent of a Notre Dame student who, who asks, you know, how are you going to keep my son or my daughter safe this fall, what do you say? You know, we're going to do everything we can, and we believe uh, consulting with the very best medical advice and working over the next three months to get all the details right, we can keep your son or daughter safe here on campus. We would not make that decision if we were not confident about that. Uh, we value the on-campus experience deeply. We care about the education uh, these students receive. So I think those two combined led us to this decision. And as I say, the safety of uh, these young men and women are, are uh, our highest priority. Um, f Father, you know, everyone talks about testing. Uh, testing is going to be necessary. It's going to be, be a major component from what I've read of your plan. Do you have the capacity to test, uh, you know, the, the student body? We're talking more than 12,000 people, obviously faculty as well. Is that, a, is that a realistic, at this point, objective goal? Let me tell you, Sanjay, if we don't have 
testing capacity, we won't open, you know, again, because that's a critical component. Everyone we've spoken to has given us confidence that we will. As you well know, the testing, um, uh, test availability is ramping up and ramping up rapidly. Uh, I believe we'll be there by the time we welcome students back. Again, if, if we can't do that, that's a critical component to success. We won't open, but I believe we will be there. And as you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, educational institutions, colleges, secondary schools, you know, lower schools, as businesses are trying to figure out how to make this work. So a lot are looking at your plan. If a student tests positive, what happens then? We have uh, space for uh, isolating that student who's positive and, and quarantining those with whom uh, that student has become come in close contact with. So that's critical part two. We have to be able to isolate those, those who have uh, contracted the, the virus. And so we, we, have the, we have the identified those facilities and we have that in place. You know, people are going to hear this. Obviously, people, there may be some people who are just concerned. Either they have a pre-existing condition or for faculty members who, who are vulnerable because of their age. How are you going to handle that? Do they, do they have to return? Can they opt out? What is their status going to be? Well, certainly those who have, you know, a, a vulnerable status, we have to look at those and, and allow them to teach in different ways. I, I believe we can structure the classroom and structure the interaction so faculty will be kept pretty safe. I think that's, that's not as challenging. I, I worry, to be honest with you, I worry more about the students because it's very hard to keep them distance from one another. You know undergraduates. But faculty and students to, to provide the classroom that can keep them distance. And, you know, if, if it's necessary to conduct office hours by Zoom or whatever, we could do that. So we haven't worked out the details, but we will keep the faculty safe. And, uh, and if, if people have conditions that prevent them, certainly uh, that, will, that will be something we'll take into consideration. You've instructed students and teachers to prepare for the possibility of, I'm quoting, unexpected severe new outbreak of COVID-19, said could it, that it could mean a return to remote learning. Um, and I know you've said that the, the odds are you will have positive cases on campus. Obviously, we hope that doesn't happen. Um, what of, I mean, is there an event that would trigger an actual shutdown of campus? I mean, I guess if the spread continued if there was a widespread outbreak, you would what, what would happen? Yeah, we that's what we'd have to we'd have to if, if it were widespread. If the official the health officials in the region said you have to shut down, we have to shut down. And what we've done is is provide um, a way in which we could move quickly online now. Uh, obviously, there are sort of all sorts of gradations here, and if it's if it's single students, if it's ten students, that's not a shutdown. If it's extensive, if it's in the community, that's that's a different story. And I, I will tell you, we have to work out, and we're in the process of look at, working out what is the threshold for making that call. And we don't do it alone; we do it in in conversation with low health officials and with medical experts. So we'll get there by that time. But we need to recognize that this is our goal. But if, if certain things occur, we may have to go to a contingency plan. We talked to Magic Johnson a couple of weeks ago. We talked to the commissioner of the MLB. Uh, athletics is on everyone's mind, and you can't help but think of Notre Dame and think of athletics, especially me as a Michigan guy, if you know what I mean, Father. Um, but that does, that does present a whole additional set of challenges, right? I mean, limiting the spread of COVID-19 among athletes in that environment. Uh, what do you think? Are you, academics, you've addressed. What about athletics? 
Well, our first priority is the education of our students. So that's what we focus on so far. But, you know, about athletics, it's something we certainly thought about and we'll think about more. Two things. I mean, one is the actual game and the, the participants. And that's in itself is a challenge, but it's a more contained challenge. Limited number of people testing, we can we could do that. As you know, Major League Baseball is going to play without fans. That's a more manageable thing. So the next question is, well, what about people in the stadium? And that's uh, that's a uh, that's an, a more difficult question, right? Because uh, so many people from so many places. So that's something we're going to grapple with in every school and indeed every sports league in America is going to grapple with that. Yeah. I don't have the answers yet. Perhaps, uh, perhaps some spacing in the stadium if we go ahead uh, would be possible. Uh, but I'd be speculating at this point. We just have to see what is possible. Our first priority is to get those kids in the classroom. But then when we, we have clarity on that, we'll, we'll talk about the athletics. Well, Father John Jenkins, we wish you the best in this. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank, thanks to both of you. Well, let's look further now into the future of higher learning and how this pandemic could be pushing it there. Our next guest teaches marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business. He recently told New York Magazine that a reckoning is coming for colleges and universities in just a matter of weeks. He's Professor Scott Galloway. He joins us now. Uh, Professor Galloway, what, what do you think the, the future of higher education is? When you talk about this reckoning, what do you mean? Well, we have raised tuition rates 1,400% in the last 40 years. Uh, this is a time of year that's supposed to be a nervous but a rewarding time of year where people figure out where they're going to school, and instead it's become a time of year where people try to imagine how they're going to take several hundred thousand dollars on in household debt. So I think that you know, we have raised, when I say we, I mean the academic community, we've raised prices faster than healthcare. And at the same time, the underlying innovation, if you walked into a class today, it wouldn't look, smell, or feel much different than it did 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think we've kind of stuck out the mother of all chins in the fist of COVID-19 is coming for us. I think this involves huge disruption, and I think it starts this fall. So you think this reckoning was coming anyway, uh, Professor? I mean, the, 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 the pandemic just sort of pushed it over the edge? Yeah, if you think about it, uh, COVID-19 is more of an accelerant than a change agent. And when you, <laughs> I went to UCLA and Berkeley on a total of $7,000 in tuition for undergraduate and graduate. And now you're looking at students who have taken on more debt than credit card debt, which results in household formation later, much more risk aggressive, uh, much more risk averse in terms of the businesses they start, and families uh, really suffering. This has been long overdue. There is a collective statement across America amongst parents watching their kids on Zoom going, this is what I've been paying for. Mm -hmm. So you have, think of another product that charges over $100,000 that gets 90 plus points of gross margin other than a a pharmaceutical for a rare cancer. There's no product in the world, not Hermes, not Ferrari, not Apple, that gets these sorts of extraordinary margins for a product that largely hasn't changed in five decades. So quite frankly, we have this coming. Do you think, do you think some colleges realizing this or fearing this, it, that's one of the pushes that they want to get kids back on campus because they feel like the longer, uh, you know, it's remote learning or, or online, more and more people are going to say, what are we paying for? 100%. Just as stock market analysts are looking at companies that have the most cash on their balance sheet, we're going to look at universities and the ones that have large tuitions, tier two brands, and their primary value add was getting your kid out of the house for four years to kind of marinate. When that experience goes away, 
you're going to see demand destruction like you've never seen. You're going to see the top tier schools go into their waiting list. They'll be fine. They'll clear the waiting list. There's never been a better time to be on a waiting list of a tier one school, which will force the tier two schools to go much deeper into their waiting list. And then the tier three schools, Anderson, are going to reach into their waiting list, which they don't have. Of the 2,800 schools, the median endowment is $7 million, meaning a lot of these schools, if 20 or 30% of the students don't show up, which the surveys say they are planning not to do in fall, we could see 20 to 40% of universities start a death march, similar to what department stores have done. Second tier universities are to education what department stores are to retail, and that is they are about to begin a death march. Oh, this is provocative stuff. And yeah. one of the things, uh, Professor Gallo, you've also wrote about, you said that you think big universities are going to partner with big tech companies, I guess like Google or Apple, uh, whoever, to help them expand, um, not, not because they have to necessarily, be, because they, they think that there's an opportunity, I guess, these tech companies do. Is that right? 100%. If you're Apple or Amazon or Google, you have this implicit agreement with the marketplace that your stock's going to double in five years, five years. Otherwise, people will buy stock in Netflix or Salesforce. And in order to do that, Apple has to increase their top line revenue by about $150 billion over the next five years, which limits the number of industries. They have to go big game hunting, and that literally limits them to government, defense, the auto industry, which is a low margin business, and they will immediately zero in on two, as they already are, healthcare and education. So big tech is about to come into education, not because they want to, but because they have to. And the benefit to universities will be that if you're able to use small and big tech to effectively take 50% of your classes offline, that is effectively doubling the size of your campus. So you're gonna see a lot of universities leverage their brand, leverage their great leadership, such as Reverend Jenkins, and use technology to effectively double the capacity of their schools, which will let them lower their prices, increase their gross margin dollars, and this will have a hugely disruptive impact, again, on the culling of the herd, the culling of the tier three universities. So the, that's the, the cost of college, I mean, do you think colleges then are going to lower their costs? And if you do, what do you see as the trigger to them doing that? Just, just suddenly they all have to start doing that? Well, it depends on wh who we're talking about. So let's look at the Ivies, which are more spectacle than historic. Only 64,000 students enrolled undergraduate at all eight Ivy League colleges, a half a percent of the 11 million kids at colleges across America. They're luxury brands. They're Hermes. Their benefit comes from artificial scarcity. They brag that they turn away 90% of their applicants, which in my view is tantamount to the head of a housing shelter. Uh, bragging that he or she turned away 90% of applicants last night. They are no longer in the business of public service. They're in the business of finishing school for rich people and some incredibly remarkable middle and lower income people. They will largely or most likely maintain their pricing power and double down on their exclusivity. Hmm. The, tier, the big public schools where two thirds of kids are now enrolled are likely, in my opinion, gonna hold on to the script. The University of California, Berkeley will graduate more kids from low income households this year than the entire Ivy League. And they will use technology as an opportunity to expand their seats at a lower cost. That will put cost pressure on the entire system. A lot of people are starting to do trade-offs around what is the certification and the education and a diminished experience worth. And this, like any other industry, is gonna go through certain cost pressures. Name an industry that hasn't had to cut costs the last 40 years, and there's one. 
education. So I think at the very top, Anderson, they continue to be Hermes, they continue to have artificial scarcity, but everywhere else you're going to see a destruction in pricing power. The companies that can expand their, their margin dollars by larger volume will do so, which will create an enormous sucking sound and disruption and chaos at the bottom half of universities. This is the most interesting, like, five minutes I've had in a long time, and I wish this could go, go on for longer. Go on, Anderson, go on. I would, I would like to take your class. I know maybe that's the wrong message to leave this with, since I, apparently well, it's all over. Well, for $7,000, if you get into NYU, it's be a lot cheaper. You can take my class. <laughs> uh, Professor Scott Gallery, really fascinating. Um, I want to read more Thank of you. what you write, because I just think it's, it's a really, it's opening my mind in a lot of ways. Thank you. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks, gentlemen. Um, up next, we want to take a look also at the, the psychological impact of the virus on K through 12 students and the best ways that educators and parents can prepare children for their return back to school. First, though, a report from our Paula Hancocks on students in South Korea, which has began reopening schools. I'm Paula Hancocks in Seoul. High school seniors have gone back to school this Wednesday across South Korea, and it really feels like a milestone in the country's fight against coronavirus. Now, there were temperature checks at the front gate, there was hand sanitizer, there was social distancing in the classrooms and also in the cafeteria. The desks, for example, in the classrooms had to be at least a metre apart. And here in the cafeteria, you can see that every other seat has been blocked out and you have these plastic partitions in between to prevent any contamination. This is the one place on campus where students and teachers are allowed to take their masks off. Now, there have been some uh, first day issues. Dozens of schools in a city just west of Seoul had to close down after two students were found positive Wednesday morning. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Increasingly over the last few days, we've been reporting more and more on how kids are being affected, not only by the virus itself, but also the ripple effects the pandemic has had on their lives. This week, UNICEF pointed to a report by Johns Hopkins researchers and said that as many as 6,000 children a day could die over a six-month period from preventable causes because of healthcare system disruptions caused by the coronavirus. Add to that the closure of schools, which in many parts of the U.S. and the world are also a source of nutritious meals for disadvantaged kids. In fact, this is uh, what UNICEF's executive director said, uh, quote, under a worst case scenario, the global number of children dying before their fifth birthdays could increase for the first time in decades. We must not let mothers and children become collateral damage in the fight against the virus. Our next guest, uh, Greta Thunberg, recently gave $100,000 she had received for her climate change activism to UNICEF to help protect kids from the pandemic. She's also helping raise even more money for UNICEF. She recently revealed she believes she may have had coronavirus after returning home from working in Europe. She said her symptoms were very mild and her father, who had traveled with her, also got sick. We spoke to uh, Greta Thunberg earlier this afternoon. Greta, you and your dad both got sick after traveling in Europe, I understand. I know you isolated yourself from your family. What was that like? Well, I mean, first of all, we didn't, we still haven't gotten tested um, because here uh, you don't, you don't get tested unless you, you're in need of, of, uh, of medical help. So, so of course, I don't know if I, if I've had it, but, uh, but I, I isolated myself anyway, and uh, 
because it, it is the right thing to do. We all need to, to take these precautionary actions and, uh, and uh, do our part in supporting society. And, well, I, I haven't been... I'm the one who can least complain about this because I haven't... So I'm very grateful that I haven't been affected by this in, in a way that many people have. But, um, but yeah, it was just the obvious thing to do, the only right thing to do. I'm curious, uh, Greta, you, you've been in isolation then uh, for, for some time, I guess, at, at your apartment there in, in Stockholm. What, is, what has life been like for you? Well, I'm not completely isolated. I can still go, out, go outside and so on. And, and in Sweden, the situation is, is uh, maybe a bit different from, mm -hmm. from other countries, maybe in the U.S., but uh, so, so yeah. But uh, but of course, I have been almost only in my apartment, which have been. Uh, well, I can still do things from home, so I can't really complain. Mm. Uh, so I've been, I've been doing things that I that I before didn't have time to do. So mm. I was very lucky. You you have millions of young people who who follow you online, and I know you've been talking with them about taking this vir virus seriously, your symptoms, uh, you know, what you, whether you had COVID or not, the symptoms you had were, were very mild, you were saying, milder than, uh, you know, other times you've been sick. Um, but one of the points you made, I, I was reading on your Instagram, is that kids should take it seriously because not only could there be, you know, underlying conditions, but also, you know, even if their symptoms are very mild, it's still possible to infect family members. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's why I decided to to post about it to to sort of spread the information that many people are not many people don't even notice that they have symptoms and then they they might spread the the virus um, without even knowing it and there especially we we young people have a very big responsibility because we aren't usually the ones you usually the ones. In, in the most risk, uh, we might not uh, experience the symptoms as as bad as ma and many others. So we have to be extra careful because our actions can be the difference between life and death for many others. You you were awarded a hundred thousand um, dollar grant from a I believe it was a Danish foundation, and you were donating that hundred thousand dollars to UNICEF to help protect kids from the fallout of this pandemic. And I know you're raising even more money for, for UNICEF, and I know another organization has done a matching grant on your $100,000. How do you see that money, or how do you hope that money is gonna be used? Well, first of all, um, I did that, and we, uh, we, have, we have launched a new campaign uh, to, to help support UNICEF during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that is because during this crisis, during any crisis, it is always the the most vulnerable people who are hit the hardest, and that is children, um, especially in the global south, um, in people in the poorest parts of the world, and um, especially people living in conflicts and refugee camps. Because there's so much focus on coronavirus, there's a lot of kids around the world who may die of things that are very treatable, but because medical systems are overwhelmed, it's going to impact children uh, in ways that a lot of people don't really anticipate. Even all the schools shutting down for many kids—that's their primary source uh, of of a you know a nutritious meal. Yeah, and sanitation and and I mean we 
we're talking about washing our hands and and staying home but i mean for, for many people in the world they they do not have access to to clean water or sanitation to soap right. and they do not even have a house to, to stay home in um and it, it it's very hard for, for many to 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 keep social distancing and we have to that's why we we need to help the people who who are most vulnerable to this crisis in in ways that we might not we might not think about here in the global north especially people in the global south and you know i, I have to say as well i mean anderson and i have traveled around the world and seen the the amazing work unicef has done in various places i mean it's a really is a, a terrific organization children's emergency fund i mean for situations like this i do want to ask you know i mean we the, the thinking early on as you know greta was that this virus largely affects really uh, affected adults, but we are learning more and more about how this can affect children as well. I want you to listen to something Dr. Anthony Fauci said. Children presenting with COVID-19 COVID who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome, very similar to Kawasaki's syndrome. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects so I, I don't know if you had heard that before, Greta, just this, uh, this uh, similarity to Kawasaki uh, disease. But when you hear that, I mean, how does it make you feel? Does it make you feel like it's uh, uh, more frightening, that there's more of a mystery? What do you think? Well, I mean, of course, of course, that is very true. We, it's sort of a myth right now that children are not being, being affected by this virus. And that is, of course, very wrong. Children both do get this disease and, and they also spread it onto others. So so we need to be very careful that this misinformation that it doesn't affect children um, becomes mainstream. We need to, to tell, to make sure that people understand that this right. also affects children. One of the things I've seen you talk about online too is just how important it is to listen to experts and listen to science. And this is a time when, you know, I was not a very good science student um, when I was in school, um, but this is a time it seems that, you know, the global scientific community is so critically important and we're really seeing just how important it is to, to follow science. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and I hope that we can see now the, the scientific community are stepping up and they are, they are speaking up more than they have they're done before because Obviously, this is a crisis that would require the scientific community to speak up. And, um, and I hope that people really, it, it feels like uh, science is getting, uh, the role of science is, is changing now. It's becoming more, people are starting to realize that we are actually depending on science and that we need to listen to scientists and experts. And I, I really hope that we, that that stays and that, that also um, is is for for other crises such as the climate crisis and the environmental crisis that we actually understand that we have to listen to to the scientists. Well, Greta Thunberg, uh, we really appreciate uh, your time and uh, and and all the work you're doing with UNICEF, and we'll continue to follow that. We wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. 
So we taped that interview earlier today, as I mentioned, and I just wanted to take a moment to point out kind of a surreal, absurd drama that played out over the last 24 hours online and amazingly in some reputable news sources. Yesterday, CNN ran an ad with pictures of some of our guests who would be on this two-hour program tonight who you've already seen. Take a look. This is the ad that we ran. It's got pictures of Kathleen Sebelius, former CDC director Richard Besser. It's got a picture of Sanjay. No picture of me. Okay, but that's okay. That's fine. I don't need another picture of me. And there's a picture of Greta Thunberg. Now, later, the ad was updated to include the commissioner of baseball when he confirmed that he indeed would be on this broadcast as well. So that's the ad that then ran. Apparently, someone with a blue check on Twitter saw the initial ad and was outraged and claimed that we had booked Greta Thunberg to be an expert on a coronavirus panel with other health experts. Then, of course, Donnie Trump Jr. jumped into this, which is weird because I thought he was allegedly running whatever remains of the Trump organization. I mean, shouldn't that be like a really busy job since it's, you know, allegedly such a great big company? Anyway, once DJ TJ started typing, then other people with blue checks on Twitter also started doing their thing because everyone has to produce content these days. That's what it's all about. It's like a tween on TikTok. You got to produce content lest you miss out on a cycle of phony outrage. Then someone who's apparently a reporter at Forbes uh, wrote an article about this alleged controversial booking and the concern about it. And the New York Post today wrote about it as well, claiming we were having her on a panel, which is what the first person on Twitter was claiming, which was made up. It was made up then. It was made up today in the Post. And in case you think this is some sort of cover-up, look at our past ads for shows. They're exactly the same. We had Alicia Keys a few, weeks de- uh, a few weeks ago debuting a video for a song she released for Frontline Workers. Nobody thought she was on a panel with the FDA, Commissioner Hahn, Governor Cuomo, and Jose Andres. None of them were on panels. They were all individual. Look, here's a promo for last week's town hall we had with journalist Lori Garrett, former Vice President Al Gore, and Spike Lee. No panel, just interviews. And again, no picture of me, just Sanjay. That's okay. I digress. Look, I get Donnie Trump Jr. attacking CNN and a 17-year-old Swede. That's like low-hanging fruit. It's like paying thousands of dollars to shoot exotic animals on a game farm. You know, it's easy. And I know Donnie Jr. just wants his dad to love him or notice him in a way that's not mocking him. But I just find it fascinating to watch the phony online outrage machine generate content on Twitter based on something that was never real to begin with. It's kind of surreal to watch it all just kind of play out. In the words of our dear leader, sad. Sanjay, uh, yeah, I, I got I, that off my chest. I wanted a picture of you, actually, Anderson. I, I asked them to put a picture of you <laughs> on the screen. They refused. I don't know what was that all about. It's all right. No, no, no problem. That's fine. And that's, you know, next contract cycle, I'll maybe I'll get that <laughs> right. in, the, in the writing. By the way, you uh, feel better now? Yeah, I do. I feel okay. better. It's just so weird to watch stuff yeah. that you're involved with play out in the public sphere. And like, this is all just made up. This is really strange. Anyway. Uh, Sanjay, thank you as always. Eleventh, eleventh town hall. Um, wow, I don't know if that's a few more to come. I think good thing or bad thing, or that we're still I doing know. it because this is still happening and no end in sight. Sanjay, thank you. We also want to say thanks to uh, Rick Bright's attorney, Lisa Banks, Rob Manfred, uh, Neil Browning, and Greta Thunberg. We should also note our invitation to any health expert from the White House Coronavirus Task Force stands for next week's town hall. So they have a week to think about it. Also, thanks to those of you who wrote in with your questions, to everyone who joined us tonight. If you didn't get your question answered tonight, conversation continues at CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. The news continues. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. 
For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. This is CNN's Global Town Hall, and often at the end of these town halls, we like to tell you about inspiring stories and deeds, people who have triumphed over the disease or helped their community or have a powerful message for the rest of America, something that will leave you with a feeling of hope. And tonight, that message comes from the White House itself, from First Lady Melania Trump, who wanted to share this message with students whose worlds have been turned upside down by this virus. Hello, students. I want to send my greetings and well wishes to all of you this evening. Over the past two months, I know you have had to make many changes in your life. Many of you had to attend classes in your homes and haven't been able to see your friends. Many of you, you were looking forward to your prom, spring sports, and graduation. These changes were not easy, but you have been so strong, and I am proud of the examples you have become. Your determination to get through this will define your generation for years to come. So thank you for helping your families, your friends, your communities, and our country to stay healthy and safe during these unusual times. Thank you for keeping up your studies and learning in new ways. As we navigate the days and weeks ahead, take care of yourself. Use this time to read the book you've been meaning to read. Practice your favorite sport or learn a new one and help out at home. Be sure to stay in touch with friends and family and make sure you are being your best self. These are important and healthy habits that we can all easily practice. And they are a reminder that we will only get through this with patience, compassion, and care. Tonight, please know that the President and I are with you during these challenging times, and we continue to do everything we can to support you. God bless you all, and God bless the United States of America. Really lovely and uh, so important. And as the First Lady just mentioned, you know, these are challenging times. A lot of our viewers are asking about how they can help others, how they can find help themselves. Uh, you can find out how by going to CNN.com slash coronavirus. You can find out there how to help. There's even categories to search for where you want to contribute in addition to resources for self-help. You can also go to CNN.com slash impact. Sanjay, thank you. I want to thank First Lady Melania Trump, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Father John Jenkins, and all the educators who joined us tonight. Also, to thanks to uh, those of you who wrote in with your questions, to everyone who joined us tonight. If you didn't get your question answered, the conversation continues at CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.